In May, President Joe Biden formally launched IPEF, the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework for Prosperity. Thank you all for joining today for the launch of the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework for Prosperity. We're launching today with countries from across the Indo-Pacific. We're here today for one simple purpose. The future of the 21st century economy is going to be largely written in Indo-Pacific, in our region. On September 8th, trade and commerce ministers from 14 IPEF countries flew to Los Angeles. After two days of talks, they announced IPEF's negotiating objectives. These objectives described what the United States, Japan, Australia, India, and all these other countries want in terms of resilient, clean, fair, and connected economies. But this isn't the first time the United States has put many of these same countries through trade-related negotiations. And the last time around, a lot of those trading partners ended up getting burned. How the United States negotiated trade deals in the past and what we know about IPEF's negotiations today are the topics of this week's show. You are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade and policy. I'm your host, Chad Bowne, the Reginald Jones Senior Fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics in Washington. To help us figure out IPEF, we're going to be joined by Barbara Weisel. Barbara worked in the U.S. government for over 30 years, most recently as the Assistant U.S. Trade Representative for Southeast Asia and the Pacific. Barbara was the chief U.S. negotiator the last time the United States was negotiating a major trade-related deal in the region. That means Barbara Weisel was the chief negotiator for the TPP. Barbara, welcome. Thank you, Chad. The story of the TPP, or the Trans-Pacific Partnership, actually begins with a little-known trade agreement called the P4. The P4 is a deal between the tiny but mighty trading economies of Singapore, New Zealand, Chile, and Brunei. Take us back to 2007-2008 when the U.S. began a new process of negotiating trade agreements with countries in Asia and the Pacific. So in 2007, we decided that we wanted to consider joining the P4. The P4 invited us to have discussions We decided that we could begin the process of negotiating with them if they were open to making some changes that would meet U.S. requirements. We ultimately decided to join, and in the course of the the years that followed, other countries joined on as well. We had Vietnam, Malaysia, Australia, Peru, and then Canada and Mexico, and finally Japan joined, so we got from the original P4 up to 12 uh, by 2014. You know, before it's publicly announced that one of these countries has agreed to, you know, join the negotiations in, in, in a deal like this, what's been happening behind the scenes in the lead up to that public announcement? Before we agree to allow another country to join, and in fact, even before we joined the P4, there were months and months of discussions bilaterally about what the U.S. would need to include in the agreement in order for us to go ahead and launch or in order for us to add another country to the negotiation. We didn't want to launch negotiations, go through our entire negotiating process, and then reach the conclusion knowing we were never going to get congressional approval. So, you know, you you reach out to a country... And the initial dance is, oh, this sounds 
good, interesting, but then they see the reality of it. How long does it take them to come up to speed with realizing what it means to actually sign a trade agreement with the United States and whether they're really in for the long haul or not? You know, it varies by country. Um, When we started the discussions with the P4, two of the four P4 countries already had FTAs with us, and we were coming in and saying we wanted to make some changes to the P4 agreement to meet what would be our new standard. So they already understood. Some of the other countries, I think, took a lot longer to truly understand how serious we were about their being ready to make those kinds of commitments and the degree of understanding we wanted to be sure they had at a political level in their countries. For some of these countries, there were standard parts of U.S. trade agreements that no one had ever asked them to negotiate before. They'd never negotiated different rules on transparency or labor or environment and a number of other issues that we include in our trade agreements that are not generally included in the trade agreements that they had negotiated up until then. Malaysia had never negotiated a trade agreement with us, and there were many elements of the agreement that they had never included in their own trade agreements. One example is government procurement. It was an extraordinarily sensitive issue for them, and it went back and forth and back and forth up to the ministerial level several times before we were ready to launch the negotiations because we were confident enough that they understood that this was going to be an element of the agreement. Sometimes when administrations are actually beginning or in process of of negotiating a trade agreement, they already have what's called in the United States Trade Promotion Authority, or, or TPA. And that's essentially a contract with Congress that says, this is what we're going to go out and negotiate over in broad terms on your behalf. And the agreement is, once we go out and negotiate the deal, at least in principle, we bring it back to you, Congress, and you don't try to amend it. You just, the best we possibly can, give it an up or down vote. And that gives the rest of the world confidence that it has the blessing of the entire United States that you're out there actually negotiating on its behalf. When did the issue of TPA come into the TPP negotiations? The issue of TPA came in from the first day that we sat down with our trading partners to discuss our interest in P4. They understood that we would need to meet the requirements that were set out in in TPA and that if we couldn't do that, we would not successfully conclude the agreement or we wouldn't get approval. So TPA expired and we were continuing to negotiate under TPP. But there was an understanding that the administration was consulting closely with Congress during the course of that negotiation and that we would have TPA by the time we concluded the negotiation. And that gave confidence to our trading partners that we would ultimately be able to get approval. In July 2015, the U.S. Congress did grant the Obama administration trade promotion authority so it could finish up TPP. The chief U.S. trade negotiator for TPP has a busy job. But negotiating with those 11 other countries all around the Pacific was really only the half of it. The other half was soliciting America's great ideas and getting the entire U.S. government on the same page with what the TPP agreement was supposed to cover. 
some of the ideas come internally from within the U.S. government, things that different agencies or people within USTR have seen in the way previous trade agreements have worked that they would like to update. Some things come from the private sector or other stakeholders who have ideas of ways to build on our trade agreements, weaknesses they've seen in previous generations that they want to improve. And some of it comes from Congress. So you're taking input from all sources and putting together draft texts that you think reflect that input and would likely achieve the goals. So can you tell us of any examples from the the TPP process where it may have been particularly challenging within the U.S. government to arrive on its you know, final negotiating position because there were internal battles between either the administration in Congress or different government agencies about what they wanted the updated rule book to look like? There are a lot of examples here. You reminded me of one on on regulatory coherence, which was an issue that the U.S. proposed adding into TPP because we thought that having more coherence in our regulatory systems would make for more seamless trade across the region. And we did not, in USTR, consider this to be a particularly controversial issue for the U.S. But as it turned out, when we circulated the draft proposal across agencies, including regulatory agencies, they didn't see it that way. Uh, They thought that the draft could tie their hands and, and limit their space to propose or implement new regulations. And it took quite a bit of back and forth with the regulatory agencies to get them comfortable with the language that we ultimately put forward. I'm, I'm laughing because I, I remember some of those meetings, being at those meetings at the time and, and watching as a spectator, sort of going back and forth. How about other examples? Saturn Enterprises was a new chapter that ended up in, in TPP. Were there any interagency controversies there within U.S. government? This was a chapter that everyone understood was really important and that we developed new provisions that would discipline SOEs. But when we got to the details of developing the proposal, it was controversial within the U.S. government, especially in those agencies that thought that programs that they ran could be covered. So, for instance, treasury programs that might run afoul of the obligations or USDA programs. And then, of course, Congress was looking at an infrastructure bank at that point, which they were concerned might be covered. On labor standards, the TPP was also proposing some pretty big changes. One problem historically had been with Mexico. The U.S. did have a side agreement on labor with Mexico under the 1994 NAFTA, but there really wasn't a way to enforce it. In TPP, the new labor provisions would now be enforceable. They would apply not only to Mexico, but to all of the other trade agreement partners, including countries like Vietnam and Malaysia. And that wasn't all. Another big innovation in TPP was that we negotiated bilateral side letters with countries on which we had specific concerns. So, for instance, we negotiated side letters with Vietnam, Malaysia, and Brunei. We also had discussions with Mexico. So the side letters were subject to dispute settlement, and they also had provisions in them that allowed the U.S. to suspend 
the tariff benefits if those countries did not implement the commitments and those side letters completely. Lots of amazing stuff would ultimately end up in TPP, but the negotiations were dragging on and on. It's now late in 2015, and the U.S. is still haggling with these other countries. The U.S. wants more export market access for American farmers. The trading partners are are finding it politically difficult to agree to proposed U.S. tax for protection of intellectual property, state-owned enterprises, and those labor standards. But finally, in October, we get a political agreement between these 12 countries. With this Trans-Pacific Partnership, we are writing the rules for the global economy. America is leading in the 21st century. Our workers will be the ones who get ahead. Our businesses will get a fair deal. And those who oppose passing this new trade deal are really just accepting a status quo that everyone knows puts us at a disadvantage. The U.S. Congress apparently did not agree with President Obama. It never passed TPP, and the agreement never came into force in the United States. There were substantive issues that were still being debated even after the conclusion of TPP, issues on which the business community preferred different outcomes than the ones we ultimately had. One of the issues that got quite a bit of press was biologics and the the term of protection. There were other issues like the carve-out that we included in ISDS for tobacco. But I think the real issue was that we concluded at what was already the beginning of the election cycle. And this issue got caught up in the politics of the 2016 elections. And there was a lot of anti-trade sentiment that built during the course of that campaign. That anti-trade sentiment was stoked masterfully in the 2016 campaign by presidential candidate Donald Trump. He won the election, and on his first Monday in office, Trump withdrew the United States from the TPP. Everyone knows what that means, right? We've been talking about this for a long time. Thank you. Great thing for the American worker, what we just did. Over the course of the next four years, President Trump took a very different approach to trade policy. He renegotiated NAFTA, the agreement with Mexico and Canada, into something called the USMCA. He renegotiated the U.S. agreement with Korea. Trump also signed a bilateral deal with Japan, one of the countries that had been left behind when he had said no to TPP. And after more than 30 years of government service, Barbara retired in 2017. So she was not involved in all those Trump-era trade negotiations. From the perspective of of a trade negotiator, what are some of the ways that the Trump administration carried out negotiations differently from how they had been done in the past? So USMCA was negotiated under TPA, as previous trade agreements had been. But the other trade agreements that they negotiated were negotiated as executive agreements that did not require congressional approval. When you negotiate an executive agreement, the administration negotiates what it sees as the objectives and what they hope to accomplish. I think that the agreements that they got, for instance, with Japan on digital issues were, that was a high standard agreement and it mirrored 
what was in other digital agreements with some slight improvements. So in that case, I think that having been an executive agreement really didn't have that much of an impact. Where it had an impact is on the trade part of the agreement, where the administration decided to negotiate market access of a limited set of products. That is not something that in a trade agreement that would have gone to Congress, Congress would have found acceptable. Doing it as an executive agreement gave the administration the freedom to decide that they were going to do a limited set of products and then promise to go back for the rest later. With Japan, President Trump never did go back for the rest later. And that was far from the only time that Trump did not consult with Congress on trade. Congress was not involved in his decision to impose tariffs on imports of steel and aluminum, including from America's military allies like Canada, Japan, Korea, and countries in Europe, when he claimed they were a threat to America's national security. Congress was also not consulted on President Trump's trade war or the phase one agreement he signed with China in January 2020. In November of 2020, Joe Biden won the U.S. presidential election. During the campaign, Biden had made clear he too was concerned about things like China and trade, but he had promised a different approach. Biden would work with allies instead of antagonizing them with tariffs like President Trump. But at the same time, trade would just not be a priority for the new president. In 2021, the Biden administration was going to focus on things at home. The COVID-19 pandemic was still raging. U.S. unemployment was still high. The president had campaigned on, on promises to pass through Congress a massive legislative agenda on climate and infrastructure and tax reform. There would be no new trade deals until the Biden administration had fully built back better. It wasn't until May of 2022 that they announced IPEF, the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework for Prosperity. What is IPEF? So first to say it's not a trade agreement or a traditional trade agreement. It's an economic agreement and it has four pillars. They are connected economy or, or trade, supply chains, clean economy, and fair economy. On September 9th, the IPEF countries released their negotiating objectives, 11 pages of text. So Barbara and I took out our red pens, scouring them for clues. To be clear though, no one really knows yet what IPEF is, not even the negotiators. And that may turn out to be really important. But we do already know what IPEF is not. Sort of. The administration has made it clear this is also not TPP. TPP carries a lot of political baggage domestically in the United States still. But in some ways, it might be like TPP. In what ways could you envision IPEF having similarities to TPP? There are some objectives that they have set out for the trade pillar that could overlap with TPP, and that is in setting new rules that would apply to the region. If you look at the chapters that they've set out in the scoping papers that were agreed earlier this month, I think many of those are similar to the, the chapters that were in TPP. So you have labor, environment, digital trade, trade facilitation, 
SPS, TBT, good governance, a lot of overlap with what was in TPP. So it is possible that the administration decides that they're going to look to TPP for some of the commitments as a starting point and decide whether or not they want to update or change those to reflect their own priorities. What what might be in the trade pillar? They've said that they're not going to be focused on negotiating tariff cuts. So what are they likely talking about? What we know so far is very limited about exactly what it is they want to negotiate. But one would think that if they're setting rules, that they're going to want to set high standard rules, building off of the last generation of agreements that were negotiated, TPP, USMCA, and other agreements. But there'll be areas where they're going to want to go beyond what's in the last generation of agreements. A good example there would be environment. So when we were negotiating the last generation of agreements, we were prohibited by Congress from negotiating anything to do with climate change. That issue now is something that will be very central to what the administration wants to do in in this agreement and that other countries will want to cooperate with the United States to see what can be done on climate change, what can be incorporated here that would be valuable. The new U.S. Trade Representative, Catherine Tai, has made clear the Biden administration will pursue a worker-centered trade policy. Her previous job was as chief trade counsel for the House Ways and Means Committee, and that meant she was instrumental in getting the USMCA passed through Congress, including by helping to negotiate, at the last minute, a new enforcement provision for labor. The new labor provision is called the Rapid Response Mechanism. So far, the rapid response mechanism has been used a number of times in auto plants in Mexico. The way it works is the threat that the United States can impose trade sanctions rapidly, stopping the plant's shipments of car parts or trucks from coming into the United States. Well, that helps empower Mexican workers to have new votes to unionize and to then bargain collectively. I asked Barbara about the mechanism and what a worker-centered trade policy might mean for the trade pillar in IPEF. I mean, on labor, what I think could be the outcome is a mechanism that's like the rapid response mechanism, but without all the rules surrounding it. So governments would consult, there would be engagement with the private sector, but not under a formal dispute settlement process or a formal rapid response mechanism. I think they may have in mind something that looks like it without the formality of it. We don't really know yet how they intend to reflect their priority of including worker-centric provisions in this agreement. We, We see that they've included language suggesting that it's important in all of the pillars. So they're clearly thinking about it. You can imagine some areas where they would like to update the last generation of agreements, you know, digital trade being one of them, where they might want to look at, for instance, gig workers and how they're, if there are appropriate commitments that would cover gig workers in, in this negotiation. The second pillar in IPEF is supply chains. 
Is it fair to say that there's a supply chain pillar because of all of the supply chain disruptions, that this is the new buzzword and every agreement from here on out is going to need to have a supply chain resilience component to it? Well, for the foreseeable future anyway. I mean, the administration picked the topics they picked because those are the topics that are on the minds of countries around the region. Those are the priorities for every government. So supply chain resilience is one of those priorities. And therefore, I think the governments wanted to figure out if there's a way to work together to reinforce the resilience of each other's supply chains. One of the supply chain issues out there is the concern of excessive geographic concentration of certain supply chains in China and getting more geographic diversification. Things like critical minerals, personal protective equipment, things like that. I do think they're talking about geographic diversification. They're all acutely aware of the risks of having supply chains with single nodes. So one of the issues is, first of all, mapping supply chains in some areas that they think are critical, and they'll have to define what those are. And then to determine whether or not there are ways to support cooperation between the countries in ensuring supply in those areas. And so by mapping, we mean data collection. You know, as an economist, we have very bad data on supply chains. So understanding who's shipping what to whom, where in the process you are. And then beyond that, are we talking about data sharing? So kind of market surveillance and, oh my gosh, we see that you know, maybe somebody just suffered a flood or a fire or a drought or something, and that seems to be impacting the supply of this critical input. And we know because we've got this supply chain mapped that that's going to be a problem, and we can start to share that information with each other. Businesses, you know, understandably, want to keep their information private. And so there's a question that government policymakers face of how do we convince businesses in the private sector to share some of their information with us policymakers that we need to ensure that the supply chain is going to continue to function without threatening their competitiveness, turning it over to their competitors and things of that nature. So maybe one of the goals here is to try to develop better systems and cooperation with other governments about keeping that information of the private sector safe so that it's more likely to be shareable when it's really needed. I think that there's a lot of work to do to figure this question out. You know, the, the only areas where this has really successfully been done is in agriculture. And you're talking about commodities there, and companies are much less concerned about sharing data related to commodities than the kinds of products that we're talking about here. So the limits of what they can do, I think, need to be tested. Critical minerals. We mentioned those earlier, but they're another example for the supply chain pillar. Given they're essential for all of these new electric vehicles— and the massive private sector investments in, in battery plants that are now coming online. One current concern is that some of those critical minerals are being processed almost exclusively in China. So if you're a country that would like to produce critical minerals but is currently not a major manufacturer of critical minerals, like the Philippines, for instance, or Indonesia, you want to link into those supply chains. And you would like to have investment in your production of those inputs, but then you want to have an assured supply chain th throughout the process. 
that links to the auto manufacturers. So we do have this new Inflation Reduction Act, which has got lots of tax credits for electric vehicles. If you can meet very complex supply chain requirements, and one of those is not have the name China for things like critical minerals or components needed for batteries. So those sorts of countries might be looking at pieces of domestic legislation in a country like the United States and saying, we want to be able to satisfy those criteria. I mean, now the Inflation Reduction Act is not is written so that certain elements are only available to free trade agreement partners. IPEF doesn't look like it's a free trade agreement, but maybe we can change that later on or, or relabel it somehow. I do think that's the way some of the countries are thinking about it. There are two issues that have come up in that conception. One is that it's a very hub-and-spoke kind of an approach with the United States being the hub and everybody else being the spoke. And for this to work, I think many of the countries would like to see a model that allows them to trade across the region without having the U.S. have to be at the center. And the second is that there are limits on what they can sell to the United States under not just the Inflation Reduction Act, but under our Buy American rules and other rules that would limit their ability to sell into the market. So if they're going to be able to participate in these kinds of supply chains and hope that they're going to benefit from them, they want to know that ultimately, if they go through this whole effort to do this, that there's a high probability that they're going to be successful in the U.S. market. So what that all means is, at the end of the day, ultimately, you get back to negotiating rules on government procurement and rules of origin. It raises the question of the linkage between the supply chain pillar and the elements of the supply chain that are included in the trade pillar and and how those are going to interact. The third pillar of IPEF is the clean economy including cooperation over climate. How would we describe what's in the the clean economy pillar? There's a lot of discussion of cooperation on R&D and sharing best practices and promoting low and zero emission goods and agricultural sustainable, sustainable practices. And I think that what you come away with there is that we all are looking to support each other's climate transition. How can we best do that? through this agreement. But the question is, are they going to simply be sharing best practices or are they going to be trying to develop standards that countries would have to meet to promote those goals? The more difficult question in this negotiation is that in the United States, we're still figuring out what those regulations ought to be in a lot of these areas related to climate as they are in many of these other countries. This clean economy pillar could also be one where the United States is open to learning from those agreements that other partners are already negotiating between themselves. You can see in the language of the documents that were released that there were some proposals that were drawn from the um, green economy agreements that Singapore and Australia are planning to negotiate. And so other countries have thought about what can they do in the trade space that's related to green economy. One of the things that they've talked about potentially is rules of origin for green goods so that you would 
look at the carbon content in supply chains and measure it, and then maybe have some sort of facilitated trade for for green supply chains, or maybe you're just promoting green supply chains that way. The fourth and final pillar of IPEF is the fair economy. The negotiating objectives language here involves transparency and also cooperation to tackle things like corruption and tax evasion. In the United States, tax and anti-corruption policies are usually handled by the U.S. Treasury. Stepping back, this points to another different feature of these IPEF negotiations. In IPEF, the U.S. side is now being led jointly by two different agencies, the Office of the U.S. Trade Representative and the Department of Commerce. This is very different from the approach in trade agreements like TPP, where USTR took the lead all by itself. In what ways might it matter that there's now a different approach from the U.S. government side? Well, it will certainly add to the challenges that the administration's facing in in successfully concluding this agreement. In TPP, USTR was established as the coordinating office on trade for the government. You have the leads for all of the issues under the chief negotiator within USTR. Everybody is working together as a team really effectively within the building. Other agencies are part of the negotiating teams, and in some of the chapters, we're co-leading in financial services, treasury leads, co-leads in in labor, the labor department co-leads. So they do play a very significant role. But I think here, you still had one agency coordinating the negotiation and the way it was conducted and how you were interacting with other countries. Now you have two agencies negotiating. They may be negotiating each of their pillars separately, and they will move forward with that pillar without regard to what the other agency is doing on those pillars. But at some point, all of this does need to come together, and it's going to be more complicated to have it between two agencies. Now, that isn't to say that they can't figure it out, but it's certainly more complicated. Getting the right rules into IPEF may also require a new type of engagement with stakeholders like companies in the private sector, in workers, as well as NGOs and civil society. I think there's a distinction here between previous trade agreements and the approach being taken here. So in previous trade agreements, you would consult with stakeholders and you develop the rules, and then the rules get put in place and companies use the rules as they have been agreed and implemented. But here what you're doing is saying, in order for us to have supply chain resilience or to have having diversity in our supply chains, we need the private sector as a fundamental actor in making coming up with the approaches and sharing information or mobilizing the capital to build the infrastructure that we need. Their role is now much more central than it is in a traditional trade agreement. So another area that they're going to need to think about is the process, the mechanisms, the tools that they're going to use to encourage the private sector participation and to make that participation effective. From the perspective of trading partners, TPP took seven or eight years, a lot of time to get all those 11 other countries on board with what the United States ultimately wanted in that agreement. 
but a lot has changed since when those talks first started. I think it's different than it was in 2008 in, in many respects. I, I think that the countries do want to negotiate with the United States because they want to ensure that the U.S. continues to play an active role in the region. And by participating in this negotiation, they're encouraging that. They also recognize that this is a different kind of trade agreement, so there may be more flexibility than what they would have in a traditional trade negotiation, and for many of them, that's a very positive thing. Why do you think, at this stage at least, that the trading partners seem to be reasonably excited about IPEF? I think that they see this as an opportunity to participate in the development of these um, initiatives or these commitments in new areas that haven't been included in previous trade agreements. The United States clearly is still thinking through its approach and what kinds of proposals it wants to put forward, but it, it is being presented at a, as a very collaborative process where they're looking for, for input from all of the countries. And I think those the, the countries that are participating in IPEP probably find that very attractive. Secondly, it doesn't look like the Biden administration is intending to put forward a traditional dispute settlement chapter. They are saying, at least for the trade pillar, that it will include binding commitments. But exactly how they intend to enforce those commitments is not clear. This may be something that they discuss with other countries and where there is a more cooperative approach to dispute settlement is something that many of the IPEF countries probably find appealing. In IPEF, the elephant in the room is clearly China. What the countries are trying to do here is to strengthen their own competitiveness in these areas that are next generation issues, climate change, supply chain resiliency, digital economy. Yes, there are implications on China and relations with China. You know, there are commercial implications, there are strategic implications. But I think the way that I looked at it when we were doing TPP, and I think it applies very much here as well, is to focus on what it is we are trying to achieve and not on the implications of others. So we're both optimists. You're a trade negotiator, so you have to be an op optimist in, in that kind of a job. But let's play devil's advocate. What are some of the ways in which this thing could potentially go wrong? The first issue that that maybe a concern is how you define success. You know, previously when we had TPA agreements, the definition of success was agreed before you started. That is not the case here. I think another way that this could, I won't say that it will fail, but the, the challenges that may emerge here is that because it's not a TPA agreement, there's no floor to what the U.S. needs to achieve. If Congress was part of this negotiation, the U.S. would have a limited amount of flexibility in what those outcomes could be. But here, if there's pushback from some of the other countries, the United States may be in a position of having to negotiate weaker commitments in order to reach agreement, or they might lose some of the other countries. I think there's also some concern about the fact that it's an executive agreement and whether if there's a change of administration, there will be either withdrawal from this agreement or a completely a new administration takes a completely new direction. 
There is also a worry that countries are choosing to negotiate IPEF as four separate and discrete agreements. A traditional trade agreement would be negotiated as what we call a single undertaking. So nothing's concluded until everything's concluded and everything's linked across chapters and there are trade-offs across chapters that allow countries to find solutions to things that they have as priorities and trade them off between one chapter and another. But here, because this is not being negotiated as a single undertaking, those trade-offs don't exist. You're going to need to reach agreement within each pillar, independent of what's done in the other pillars. That gives you less flexibility and, and room to negotiate in ways that you do when it's a single undertaking. So if you wanted to, for instance, achieve a high standard outcome on labor in the trade chapter, and another country was looking to get benefits, and those benefits are in, for instance, the clean energy pillar, that country could decide that they'll take the benefits in the clean energy pillar. We mobilize capital, we support infrastructure development through that pillar, and they'll take that benefit but they will withdraw from the trade pillar. Where's your Where's your bottom line as of today on IPEF? I think they have a lot of work to do to fill out the details of the proposal. But having been a trade negotiator myself, where people are constantly doubting your ability to develop the proposals in a way that make them meaningful, I feel like I need to give them time to do that. There are a lot of important elements of this agreement. And some of these are really groundbreaking new areas that have not been included in previous trade agreements. So let's give them the room to succeed. Let's support them where they can and hope that they're successful. Barbara, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. To wrap things up, overall, I too am optimistic. There's a lot to like about a new approach that's inclusive, collaborative, and where countries are not just getting a a take-it-or-leave-it offer from the United States. But trading partners should be clear that this approach carries its own risks. They have newfound responsibilities. In the old days, under TPA, what the U.S. wanted from other countries was clear almost from the beginning. Here, if objectives turn out poorly defined or misunderstood, IPEF could fail. The worry is IPEF ends up being like the WTO's Doha round, negotiations which went nowhere for 15 years before they were ultimately scrapped. From the American side, there's also some concerns about the market access issue. U.S. exporters continue to face relatively high tariffs from countries in the region like Vietnam, Malaysia, and certainly India. IPEF negotiations may deliver amazing new rules and standards to underpin resilient supply chains for a cleaner and fairer economy. But in order for American companies to take advantage of those fantastic new rules, they need market access. And if you don't reduce other countries' tariffs, American companies may not be able to fully participate in the region's supply chains. The last worry involves this approach of separating the four pillars. A benefit of the old approach of a single undertaking is that it allowed for trade-offs across pillars. I lose a little in this pillar, but it's offset by massive gains in this other pillar. But today, if the pillars are not linked, maybe none of the key countries participates in that first pillar. Those concerns aside, it is a great thing that the United States is now trying to build something rather than simply seeking to tear something down without a vision for how to replace it. 
which was seemingly the U.S. approach during the last administration. So I do think the Biden administration is headed in the right direction. Though, of course, there's still a lot of work to be done. And to all the negotiators across the IPEF countries, today's Barbara Wiesel's, I too wish you the best of luck. And that is all for Trade Talks. A huge thanks to Barbara Wiesel, former Assistant U.S. Trade Representative for Southeast Asia and the Pacific, and now at Rock Creek Global Advisors. Thanks to Melina Kalb, our supervising producer, Yiling Wang on data, and Nia Kitchen on graphics. Thanks also to Colin Warren, our audio guy. Do follow us on Twitter. We're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks. Because when it comes to U.S. attempts to negotiate and implement trade deals with countries in Asia and the Pacific, hopefully two is better than one.